Thank you for listening to another inspiring message from The Movement Church. To find out more about The Movement Church, you can check out our website at theocmovement.com or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at The OC Movement. Good morning, Movement Church. Man, this is the exciting service today. Let's try this. Say Merry Christmas. Oh, let's try it one more time like you actually mean it. Ready? Merry Christmas. Oh, very good. Now turn to somebody on your right or your left and tell them Merry Christmas. Isn't that every introvert's worst nightmare right there, making me talk to somebody that I don't want to talk to? We're so glad that you're here. I mean it. You know, we just finished a series called At The Movies, and uh, it was a lot of fun to be able to come in here, and I got to sit down and watch myself preach. I was critiquing the entire time, but it's great to be back in the pulpit and be with you, and I'm, I'm excited. We, we like Christmas at the Movement Church, and, and I want to just challenge you, on your way out today, grab one of these or five of these invite cards and and make the Movement Church your home for Christmas. Every Sunday we have something pretty awesome happening. Next week, Santa's coming to town. Yes, I know him. He'll be here next week. We got the Polar Express. We have train rides for kids the following week. The the next week we have live music after both services with Lord and Lady. I'm excited about it. But we also are super stoked for our Christmas Eve candlelight services. So this year on the 23rd, We'll have two normal, exciting services at 9 and 11, and then on the 23rd at 4 p.m. and the 24th at 4 and 5.30 p.m., we will have our one-hour traditional family candlelight Christmas Eve service. You do not want to miss it. It's going to have candlelight. We'll read some stories to some kids. We'll have our elementary kids with us. We've got some entertainment for them. We've got amazing musical performance that you do not want to miss. And literally, this has become one of the fun traditions that we do, and we wanted to give everybody an opportunity. We know that some of you have traditions on Christmas Eve. So we have a service on Sunday, the 23rd, that will be the same service we have on Christmas Eve just for you. And listen, here's the great thing about Christmas. Whether you want to believe it or not, whether you'd like to think it or not, regardless of your faith background, regardless of your heritage, all of humanity is pointing towards Jesus at Christmas. All stories, all movies eliminate, illuminate the, the purpose and the power of who Jesus is. No matter what people believe or want to believe. And listen, people are hungry for hope. And they're just desperate and waiting on someone to point them in the right direction. So here's my challenge to you. Grab a few invite cards and on your way out today and this week and over the next few weeks, invite your friends to church. Let's pack this place out and see God do some awesome things. Does that sound great? Awesome. Thanks to two of you. Does that sound great? Oh, there it is. That's awesome. Well, listen, I'm excited to preach uh, a message to you today. And like I said before, at the end of today's service, we're going to give everyone an opportunity to give towards the legacy offering. I want to give you uh, a heads up, no strings attached, but just to let you know where we're headed. And I thought it would be appropriate for us to start or to share today the message of a specific miracle that Jesus performed that really kind of put him on the map. It was one of those that's a little bit different than the ones he had performed prior to this. And, and it kind of falls in an interesting time frame because when, when this took place for Jesus, it was after he was in his hometown of Nazareth. And while he was in Nazareth, he was actually rejected by the people in the town that he grew up in. They were like, bro, we know you. You're the carpenter's son. Why, why do you think you can come in here and speak with authority? And so 
He, he's at home hoping to really build a following and to make an impact, but they reject him while simultaneously his notoriety is building in other parts of the known world. Everywhere that Jesus would show up, people would hear about it and they would show up by the thousands. Pre-email, pre-news, pre-Instagram, they just knew Jesus was going to be there and I want to be there. And everywhere Jesus went, there was this palpable expectation for miracles. It was, it was in the air. And everywhere that Jesus went, miracles happened. And I, I just kind of think as a side note that all too often in our great country, we circumvent the miraculous because our expectation has been suffocated by our mediocre experiences. And I just wonder, hey, look at me in the eyes for a moment. I just wonder what God wants to do in your life today. I don't believe it's by accident that you're here. No matter how you got here, an invitation, maybe you saw a sign and it opened up your eyes, you saw a sign. Three Ace of Base fans. I think God wants to do something miraculous. And here we see in this story, Jesus is rejected in his hometown and he's bummed out about it. It discourages him. So he tries to get away by boat with some of his homies and he's like, hey, this is, this is frustrating. Let's just get out of here. Let's bounce. But that doesn't work either. And we pick up on this story, which is titled in most Bibles as Jesus feeds the 5,000. In Mark chapter 6, verse 32, read this with me. It'll be on the screens. And if you'd like to follow along, you can text the word notes to our number and, and get our notes for the day. But Mark chapter 6, verse 32, it says this. And they went away by boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Now when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. So this scripture actually begins to pull the curtain back and truly show the heart of Jesus. He's frustrated. He had just gotten rejected by his own people in the hometown that he grew up in. And he's like, I got to get away from these crazy people. And he shows up and yet again, thousands are surrounding him. And instead of allowing his frustration to win out, he's overwhelmed with compassion. Why? Because he sees that they are like sheep without a shepherd. In other words, they're wandering aimlessly without hope without a future and it pulls back the curtain and Jesus recognized that and he says we can't run from this we have to do something we have to do something so we'll find out later on in this story that Jesus actually decides to meet the physical needs of the people gaining influence so that he can actually impact their spiritual needs. Let me say it this way, that he impacted them internally before he could impact them eternally. And we see this over and over in Jesus' life. We read on in verse 35, the scripture says this, and when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. Always nice when your disciples are encouraging. This is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. They're hungry, Jesus. They're tired. Send them away. Verse 37, but he answered them, you give them something to eat. 
You give them something to eat. So Jesus is a long-winded preacher. So the next time I go along, I'm just trying to be like Jesus. Don't get angry at me, okay? Jesus is a long-winded preacher, and it's late, and the people are hungry, and the disciples are probably, if we're honest, hungry too. And they're like, bro, Jesus, it's time to pull the plug on this. This is a good message, but we need to wrap it up. Let's wrap it up. The Bible says there's 5,000 men, but we know they didn't count women and children. So most historians believe they were in the neighborhood of 20,000 hangry people. How many of you get hangry? Raise your hand and don't you lie. Some of you that are not raising your hand, you need. My whole family gets hangry, not me, the women. Y'all pray for me. It's dangerous. 20,000 hangry people and they need some food. They have a great need. Send them home. They're in need. And Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, you feed them. Do me a favor, turn to your neighbor and say, you feed them. Now turn to your second choice and say, I don't know. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? God, we just thank you that you're here in this place, that you're doing something miraculous. We lean into you. We we don't want to lower our expectation to meet our experiences, but God, we want to have great expectation that you can and will and are going to do something miraculous right here and right now. God, I just pray that you'd open our hearts and our ears to hear and receive whatever it is that you want to do or say. And God, I just thank you that you helped the Cowboys beat the Saints on Thursday night as well. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And A, it's been a good week for Kerry Robinson just because of that win. So I just wanted to get that in there. I prayed hard for that and fasted, and the Lord, he answered. So I'm grateful for that. But listen, let, let, let's jump back into our sermon. And uh, here, here's the thing that, that's interesting. If you look back through the, the course of time and you look through the, the annals of history, it doesn't take much over the course of decades, centuries, and millennia to see the, the depravity, the, the, the grossness to, to which humanity can stoop. You, you can look back through the course of time and you can see the ebbs and flows of humanity all throughout history. And you can see the things and the times and the years and sometimes centuries to which we, we behave so poorly. And if we're being honest even disgusting at times, and not just over the course of the last thousands of years, but even the last hundreds of years here in our own country for 246 years. Our country took part in and simply allowed slavery to exist. When I look back to that time frame in our nation, it's humiliating and embarrassing that we allowed it to go on for so long and it became so ingrained in our culture. It became the cultural norm for us that it took a war to split this country in half and hundreds of thousands of people to lose their life just to demolish it. In Germany, on November 9th, 1938, which is referred to as Crystal Night, it began the, the Nazi reign of terror over the Jews in that region. And over the next seven years, seven million Jews and countless millions more were murdered at the hands of the Nazis. And what's terrifying about this story is not merely that it happened, but in that same country were millions of people who sat back and did nothing. And at some point, at some point though, If we look through the course of history, we do see the darkness and the depravity, but we also see that at some point, humanity answers. 
Like we can't stay here because we can also see the great accomplishments of humanity through the course of time. We can see what takes place when people actually unite for the purpose of standing for justice, fighting tyranny and oppression. We see the tides of terror turn at the hands of people who decide that enough is enough. But, but one doesn't have to search too far into our past or to search too far to see humanity's need. From human trafficking and slavery, which still exists today, to the very real, very present issues of racism that still is dividing our country. But, but, but it doesn't even have to be as horrible as a Holocaust or slavery to see the need of humanity right here. And my friends, what is so real is that it's actually happening right here in our backyard. Now, I, I know it's overwhelming at times because you go, well, where do we start? What do we do? How do we change it? Can we even change it? Well, when you look at the needs of humanity, this is a terrifying region because I spit a lot when I preach. When you look at the needs of humanity, it can be overwhelming. What do we do? Can we even do anything? Where do we start? And it's hard when the weight of it is overwhelming. And listen, people have been asking this question for years. In fact, religious leaders were perplexed with this when Jesus was alive. And they're like, well, who is supposed to help? In fact, they had laws in the Jewish community that would say, if you are not a part of the Jewish community, then I have a right to hate you. And here Jesus steps on the scene and he starts saying things like, love your enemy and pray for those who despitefully use you. And the, the leaders were saying, what, who are we, what are we supposed to do? What, where do we even start? What's the greatest commandment, they asked Jesus. And we read of this in Mark chapter 12. And Jesus responds in verse 29. He says, the most important one, the most important commandment, the most important thing that you and I can do, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the most important one is the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. Here comes the response. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. He's saying it's time that we love God and we love the people right here in our own backyard. We don't have to look far, friends, to see humanity's need. You know, it's happening right here in Orange County. You know, it's terrifying. I'm not a native to Orange County, although I've lived here for seven years, so I feel like that makes me local. I no longer like Texas. I like Orange County, so I feel like I need something. You know, I'm kind of local, but I'm not native. And what's, what was terrifying to me as I, I got here, I began to realize that Orange County has major pockets of poverty, but we hide them. We hide our pockets of poverty. And, and sure, we'll be apt to write a check to help people of flood victims in different states and different worlds and nations, but we drive right past some of the people with the greatest need. You did so just coming to this building today. There's a great need in our own backyard. And I, I'm afraid that in our county, right here in our, our cities, that if we're not careful, we'll succumb to the notion that if I can't do everything, I probably won't do 
anything. And we need to be aware of this. Listen, it would be foolish for any of us to think that we are far removed from that. Regardless of what role you play in life or in the church, we need to be aware of a default setting. That all of us have this default that we are naturally inclined to slip into. So for the next few moments, I want to talk about our default settings, which alludes to the decisions that we have to make that are in front of us. Some of our default settings keep us from actually accomplishing what God's called us to do. And I think one of our default settings is silence. I love the Martin Luther King Jr. quote that says, Our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter most. You see, I believe that when we see injustice and we see need and we say nothing, we actually inadvertently contribute to the problem. We become part of the problem just by remaining silent. Now, I don't believe that our mission is to rally protests and to build a militia, but to use our voice in our sphere of influence. God literally handpicked you and put you into your neighborhood, to your place of work, in the family, as crazy as they are, that he did put you in specifically because your voice actually matters. And yet our default is to remain silent. You know, one thing that I believe is worth speaking up about? Jesus. Jesus. He is the hope of the world. He is the answer that our world needs. And I actually believe that the culture that you and I live in, it tries desperately and has succeeded to a certain extent to silence the sound of Christianity. It's made it awkward to talk about your faith because you don't want to be associated with bigots and hate mongers. And what's so sad is that there have been Christians through the course of the last few decades specifically who have been a poor representation and a poor sound of what Jesus actually stood for. But that doesn't mean that you and I must remain silent. In fact, we can change the sound of Christianity but we must be aware that our sound is, that, 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 that our default is silence. And if our default is silence, then I believe our decision is to speak up. The mandate in our life is that we must speak up. Don't be silent about your faith. And the transformation that's taken place as a result. I think so too often we, we associate our faith with just some tradition or religion and we remove the power of the change that God's done in my life. Hey, listen, if we were to sit down over coffee, I could unpack for you and reveal to you the fullness of my story and you would realize that I have no right to be here except for the fact that Jesus is at work in my life. If you knew the depravity of which that my life has stooped the choices that I've made and I wouldn't, And shouldn't be here except for the fact that Jesus changed my life. And yet for some reason we choose to be silent about these things. I'm not talking about on the grand scale of things, the national scale. I'm talking about with your coworkers and your classmates and fellow students at Saddleback College. UC Irvine and Laguna Hills High School. I believe our decision is to speak up. Now, I don't think we can just kind of wear a banner of this and, and be an idiot about it and yell, turn or burn, get right or get left. <laughs> that has to be said with a southern accent. Just get right or get left. If you're going to speak up, speak up about the things that matter to Jesus. 
You know, Jesus didn't stand up and t- talk about the things he stood against. Jesus stood for things like grace, which is favor that you can't earn. Oh, man. Like, you can't work enough to get the grace that God has given you. You can't get everything perfect and cleaned up and organized. I mean, right now, right where you're at, God loves you just like that. That was the message of Jesus. We're going to stand. We're going to speak up. We should speak up about grace. If we're going to speak up, we should speak up about hope. Why? Because this world tries to eradicate hope in our lives. It just, man, it's a dismal future. Just watch the news for 30 seconds. It's all horrible. I'm surprised all of us are still alive. Are you tracking? It doesn't matter if it's CNN or Fox. They're all, it's negative. The world is ending. It's a financial economic disaster. It is imminent. We're all going to die. Man, let's just bring in some hope. Like we, as long as we are breathing breath, there is hope for the future. Oh, man. And not only that, but God has a specific plan mapped out for us. You know, another thing to speak up about is love. What is love? Love means that no matter who you are, your race, your creed, your heritage, your past, you belong here. Don't be silent when it comes to your faith. And don't be silent when it comes to meeting the needs of the people in your community. I think another default that we have is apathy or inaction. Apathy. You ever heard of the term compassion fatigue? Compassion fatigue. People in the medical field and first responders and social workers have to work diligently to stave off compassion fatigue. And that is the idea or the notion that when I see enough brokenness, when I see enough hurting, if I see it too much and too often, I begin to be callous to the needs of people because I don't know how to manage the challenges inside. Why do you think that there's a, such a revolving door when it comes to social workers in our nation? It's because they see an overwhelming need to be met, but our government can't do what it needs to do. And so they just become overwhelmed with it and then they become callous and then they hate that and get out because, man, there's just so much hurting and brokenness in our world. And we do the same thing. I mean, how many fires have we seen rage across the state over the last two years? We don't even read about it in the papers anymore. How many more shootings? We'll put an Instagram post up, pray for Thousand Oaks. But do we really pray? And when we limit it to just a notion or a thought, and we, we, we stopped actually having compassion for the people in our world that are hurting and are broken, and we accidentally or unintentionally slip into doing nothing. If our default is apathy, then I believe our decision must be action. To do something. Everybody say, do something. To do something. Just to do something. But then again, the question that surfaces is, what do we do? Like, where do we start? Where do we begin with this thing? And the great news is, and I don't know about you, but this is why I love to read the Word of God, the Bible. It's not just some some book that I think has great insight. It's actually the the manual for my life because I face too many challenges and obstacles that I don't know what to do. And when I get there, I read the Word, and Jesus knew that we would struggle with this notion of what do we do, where do we start when it seems overwhelming. And He has passages to help us recalibrate our mind and our heart. He says in James chapter 1, verse 27, he said, you want to know what real religion is? You know what, what it really means to be a follower of Jesus? The kind, the kind that actually passes muster before God the Father? Let me tell you what it is. To reach out to the homeless. 
and the loveless in their plight. And to guard against corruption from this godless world. To take care of the people who don't or can't. Whereas nobody taking care of them. God's constantly reprogramming our hearts and our actions towards what stirs his heart. Jesus is illustrating this to us. In fact, there was a passage of scripture where, where the people were so frustrated, like, who, what, what, who is our neighbor? What are we supposed to do? And they were so immersed into a culture of faith. Listen, he knew that you and I could be so surrounded by Christianity, but lose sight of what he cares about. That was a much better statement than you amen right there, but it's cool. And no laughter. It's going to be a good day. <laughs> Look at this scripture found in Matthew chapter 25. It says this, verse 34. Jesus is painting this picture of, of how we could actually lose sight of what matters to him. And there might be people who get to the doors of eternity and stand before Jesus and they don't realize they missed out on what matters most. He tells it through the eyes of a story of a king. He says, then the king will turn to those on his right and he'll say, you have a place in my father's heart. Come and experience the full inheritance of the kingdom realm that has been destined for you from before the foundation of the world. Look at this. He says, let me tell you why you have a part here in my home. For when you saw me hungry, you fed me. And when you found me thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And when I had no place to stay, you invited me in. And when I was poorly clothed, you covered me. And when I was sick, you tenderly cared for me. And when I was in prison, you visited me. And they responded to the king, well, when did we see you hungry? When were you lacking clothes? When were you in prison? And the king responds in verse 40, don't you know that when you cared for one of these least important, the people who've been forgotten and neglected, when you care for those, these are my little ones, my true brothers and sisters, then you've demonstrated love for me. Notice what communicated love in this passage of scripture was action. It was action. He said, you fed me when I was hungry. When I had no shelter, you invited me in. You covered me. You cared for me. When I was in prison, you visited me. And the people that are in need right here in our own backyard, and they need us the most. And that requires some action. I believe that not only is, is apathy a default, but I also believe that sufficiency is a default of ours. Not efficiency, sufficiency. The bare minimum. Just enough. Sometimes we do get motivated and inspired to, to bring change or to be the change or to financially invest and to do something. But usually for most of us, we do just enough as long as it doesn't really inconvenience me. And if we're being really honest, I think sometimes, and dare I say most times, we help people just to feel better about ourselves rather than actually make a tangible difference. I believe our default is sufficiency. I think Orange County is really good at it. Do just enough for the appearance and the internal feeling of making a difference, but not actually caring whether or not I am. You track with me this morning. If that is our default, I believe that our decision must be sacrifice. 
You can't say sacrifice without realizing that it hurts a little bit. Sacrifice means it actually costs something. It actually costs something. This morning, before your alarm had even gone off, an army of men were already on their way to this high school to set up this church. There was an entire crew that got here 30 minutes earlier just because there's a set behind that screen that had to be disassembled so we could actually have space on this stage. 5.30 a.m. on their day off after they did a honey-do list on Saturday as well. Why do they do that? Because they're better than you? Yeah, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, because they recognize that the sacrifice brings some change for people. Because they realize, man, if you could show up today and not have to worry about it, and maybe raise your faith level a little bit, and maybe experience God do something awesome, and maybe just have an expectation for a miracle, maybe you leave here with just a little bit of transformation. Sacrifice. Every great shift throughout history always came on the heels of sacrifice. Yeah. When you look back through the course of time and you see the depths to which humanity can stoop, on the heels you see the greatness to which humanity can accomplish, but never for free, always at great cost. The Allied troops in World War II said, enough is enough. We're going to fight every battle. We're going to storm the beaches of Normandy, even if we lose life. Why? Because there are people in need. Great people like Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass risked everything in the Underground Railroad. Why? To free some more slaves and so that people could experience freedom. And they sacrificed everything. It was not a small cost. And we look back through history books and it looks sexy. And it looks amazing. But we don't know the price that was paid. And then we sit comfortably in our world that we live in while people all around us are in great need and we just limit ourselves to sufficiency. I believe the greatest response to the grace of Jesus is to live a life of sacrifice for those who need it most and for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe that should be our response to what Jesus has done for us. Let's jump back into our passage of scripture where Jesus is about to do a miracle to feed 5,000 or 20,000 hangry people. They're angry and they're frustrated, they're tired and they're looking for food and the disciples see the need. They see the need of 20,000 people and what do the disciples do? They look to Jesus. Yo, these people are hungry, we gotta do something. There's a need, so they look to Jesus. And Jesus looks right back at the disciples and he says, you feed them. I would have been like, Psh. that's what I would have said if I was Jesus. Psh. First service laughed a lot harder than second service. You feed them. The disciples had nothing. They didn't have food. They didn't have enough funds to take care of the needs of the people. So they immediately began a search party within 20,000 people. Hey, who has their lunch? Did anybody pack some tuna fish? Is there anyone here who has some food left over? And they looked and looked, and out of 20,000 people, they only found one boy. The account in John calls him a lad. And this one boy had a prepared mother 
who sent him with five Hawaiian rolls and some tilapia. Y'all got to know it was Hawaiian rolls. How many of you love Hawaiian rolls? They're the best. Yeah, now we're all in. They just pop them like marshmallows. I love those things. Oh, it's the best. I don't even think it's real food. It's just amazing. Listen, 20,000 people, only one boy whose mom was prepared, sent him with some food, five loaves of bread and two fish. And you know what that illustrates to me? If you'd step back and look at the subtext. 20,000 people. The Bible says they ran. They saw him cross. They saw Jesus crossing the water and they ran to the other side. And it illustrates how hungry the crowd was for something of substance. That they're willing to forego and disregard their own physical needs. Because Jesus had something of substance. Now, obviously the disciples are bullies because they stole this little kid's lunch. <laughs> we think it differently. Like, oh, that's so sweet. No, if you were the mom, you're like, where's Peter? I will burn him right now. <laughs> they show up and... They've got this little, you know, lunch that the boy, obviously, he provided and said, okay, yeah, sure, whatever. I mean, 20,000 people, good luck. And they bring this to Jesus. And look at how the account continues in Mark chapter 6, verse 39. It says, then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. Verse 41 and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. And he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the, divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up the 12 baskets full of broken pieces of bread and of the fish. So Jesus is standing there with the disciples and they bring him five loaves and two fish. And he says, this is good. This is all I need. Have the people sit down. And he looks up and he says, God, you bless this thing. And 20,000 people ate. And what did Jesus need for that miracle? He didn't need the spiritually elite. It wasn't the disciples. If you read in, in Mark chapter 6, in the beginning of that chapter, Jesus sent the disciples out two by two to pray for the sick and to do miracles, and they did. So God was already working in and through them, but it wasn't the spiritually elite that Jesus needed. It wasn't the wealthiest person in the crowd. It wasn't some amazing politician. You know what Jesus needed? It was simply a boy who was willing to do something with what he had. This is what I have. I don't have much, but this is what I have. And I doubt that that young boy woke up that morning and thought, I'm pretty stinking awesome. Hey, mom, meatloaf, different story. Hey, mom, <laughs> make me an awesome sandwich because today I'm doing a miracle. I don't think he woke up like that. His mom just gave him a lunch on his way out to see Jesus. And he showed up and he just did what he could with what he had, and God made it miraculous. God made it miraculous. Look me in the eyes for one minute. What are you willing to do with what you have? This boy gave up his lunch. It was a sacrifice. What are you willing to do with what you have? Do you know what I think our greatest challenge is? That we consume what was meant to contribute. 
We live in one of the most affluent areas on the planet. I read a statistic not too long ago that said the city that we live in is 215% above the national average of poverty. We live in the most, one of the most affluent areas in the world, and yet we drive by pockets of poverty on a regular basis, and we live and settle for sufficiency. What are you willing to do with what you have in your hands? In 1938, in the fall, a man named Nicholas Winton, he saw the genocide emerging of the Jews in Nazi-occupied Germany. And he realized, I I can't do everything, but I can do something. And he just said, man, we've got to make a difference and save these children. This is going to be terrible. And so he began to work and negotiate and maneuver. And he built what was called the kinder transport. And he couldn't save every child in Nazi-occupied Germany, but he could save a few. And over the course of a small amount of time, he was able to rescue 600 or over 650 children. Fifty years after this took place, Nobody knew about it, and a a news station caught wind of the story, and they said, hey, can we bring you on our show and and just tell the story of what you've done and how you rescued children? What he didn't realize is they had found some of the children who had survived because of his sacrificial gesture, and they brought him on the show. Watch this clip. I became part of this program that I didn't know. I was going to meet for the first time the children that I'd brought over so many years before. He managed to save 664 children. This is his scrapbook. There are all kinds of fascinating pictures in it. Perhaps you can see this is a picture of Nicholas Winton himself with one of the children he rescued. If you look at the very back of this scrapbook, fascinating things in it, all the letters, But back here is the list of all the children. This is Vera Diamant, now Vera Gissing. We did find her name on his list. Vera Gissing is with us here tonight. Hello, Vera. And uh, I should tell you that you are actually sitting next to Nicholas Winton. I wore this around my neck, and this is the actual purse that we were given to come to England. And I'm another of the children that you saved. Can I ask, is there anyone in our audience tonight who owes their life to Nicholas Winton? If so, could you stand up, please?
You know, he never asked to be recognized. And a movie was not made about his life. But he just simply did what he could with what he had. And you see the effects of this. And I just wonder what history will tell of you. Not of the people you're seated next to. Don't, don't remove the responsibility from your shoulders. We, we can't look to someone else to do something. I believe there's a mandate on our life to be a part of the solution. And I just wonder what history will tell of your life. Well, when we get to the end and we look back through the story of your life with opportunities, what will it say? And it does not have to be some grand gesture. It just has to be understanding all I need to do is something with what I have in my hands. And right now, in, in the, the region that we live in, we have an opportunity. Today, we have an opportunity. This Give Hope store that we're doing is not just because we want it to look good for the sake of the church, but because there's people in our backyard who need to know that there's hope. In a few moments, at the end of our service, we're going to give everyone in this room an opportunity to give in our legacy offering towards our Give Hope initiative. It's called Legacy on Purpose because I believe you and I have an opportunity to do something with, it, with, with what's in our hands and not just leave a legacy, but to live a legacy. And that's why we're going to impact the widow and the orphan, the hurting and the broken in our world. And, and this offering, part of it is going to help impact the children at our care point in Swaziland, South Africa. So we can have an amazing Christmas party and remind 400 children who have been abandoned and forgotten and neglected that they still have hope for the future. That's why we're going to impact the kids who call the movement church home and make sure 2019 has the most exciting curriculum and everything they could possibly want and need to want to be a part of church. Why? Because I believe our mandate is to take care of those kids right here as well, raising them godly so that they can become the generation who says, we don't mind being generous. We don't mind being sacrif sacrificial. Why? Because our lives can count for something. And finally, we're going to invest into this Give Hope store to the underprivileged right here in our own backyard. And so here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. Not even right now, but just to prepare your hearts. We never ask people to give money, ever. The only thing we would ask is that you would ask God. And say, God, what would you have me do? What would you have me do? I, I wanna be part of the solution and this is an opportunity for me to do just that. And then my, my request would be just be obedient. My wife and I do this every year. We say, God, just give me an amount. And we bring those amounts together and we go with the highest one. It's always mine because I'm more generous than she is. <laughs> and we say, okay, we'll do that. And sometimes it hurts. But we realize, man, what an opportunity before us to impact the people who need it the most. So we'll give you an opportunity to do that at the end of our service. We don't want you to feel manipulated or coerced. You don't have to do anything at all. but I want to challenge you. Let's be part of the solution. And let me just pause right here because I believe there's some people in this room right here, right now, who you need to know that you matter most to Jesus. That, that literally God couldn't love you any more than he possibly could right now. 
Like everything that you are, everything that you've experienced, every poor decision you've made, he, he doesn't see you from the perspective of your past. He sees you from the perspective of your future. And I believe that for some of us in this room, you need to begin the journey with Jesus. And there is a starting line. It is not church membership. And if you're like me, the good news, it's not getting rid of your past. It's just simply believing and saying, God, I'm going to step out of the driver's seat and give you permission to steer the car of my life. And if you're here and you've never made a decision in a moment, I'm going to give you a chance to do just that with no embarrassment to you. You don't have to get out of your seat at all. And there's some of you in this room who, who may have made a decision like that, but you've been running from God and today's your day to come running back. In a moment, I'm going to pray a prayer. And if you're in either groups of those people, those that need to begin the journey or start again for the first time in a long time, I want to challenge you, make this day your own. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Nobody looking around, no one moving. If you're here and you've never begun the journey with Jesus, or today is the day to begin it again for the first time in a long time, I want to just challenge you to right where you're seated to pray this prayer in the quietness of your own heart or in a small whisper. Just repeat after me. Say, dear God, I know that you're real and that you love me. I know that you've given me purpose, that you sacrificed for me, but I'm not perfect, God. Would you forgive me? And then make this statement your own. Just say, Jesus, I give you my life. In Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer with us today, we are so excited to be a part of this journey with you. Would you email us at info at theocmovement.com? And if you're not in the area, we would love to help you find another life-giving church near you. Send us an email at info at theocmovement.com and we'll get back to you shortly. Thank you again for listening to another inspiring message from The Movement Church.